I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 19, Claudia and the Bad Joke. Bad joke indeed. Yeah. (laughs) Joke? Yeah, is it a joke? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get into our one-sentence summaries. Um, Mine is, a new babysitting charge breaks Claudia's leg. (laughs) Oh, it's a little similar to mine. Uh, mine is a little girl with presumably poor social skills breaks Claudia's leg. Okay, mm-hmm. you're going to tell us some things about the book. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> My summary is practical jokes were not funny in the 80s or ever, and Claudia breaks her leg. <laughs> okay. Uh, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. I'm Annie Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstodybrook at gmail.com. All right, you two. There's a lot of psychology in this book. I bet you have some questions. Um, but before we start, so people know what's going on other than it's not like a Nancy Kerrigan situation. Like this girl doesn't. I mean, it kind of is. Break. It's not not. <laughs> <laughs> Betsy Sobach doesn't just like outright slam Claudia. Like a crowbar. Style. Yeah, Takes exactly. a crowbar and just like. It's not that far from it. But Anne, can you just give a ju- more a little bit more in-depth summary of what happens? And then you guys can start asking me about the confusing stuff. Right. I don't know how deep this book is, really. But so there's a new babysitting client. Her name is Betsy Sobak. Um, apparently, she's gone through all the other babysitters in Stony Brook um, because she is known for her practical jokes and no one wants to babysit for her anymore. So the mom turns to the babysitter's club and Claudia is assigned um, the babysitting and basically she the girl plays a lot of dumb tricks on her and one of the tricks quote-unquote tricks or pranks is that she has claudia sit on a swing that she knows is broken so she's thinking oh claudia's gonna sit on it and she's just gonna fall but really it doesn't break right away and claudia you know swings and swings and then it breaks and she like flies through the air (laughs) not not funny but (laughs) And like yeah, lands, it's, horrifying. it's horrifying and like lands in the driveway and like breaks her leg. So mm-hmm. the rest of the book is basically uh, her in like, you know, she's in the hospital for a week and then she's out of babysitting for a month. Um, she contemplates even dropping out of the babysitter's club because she's afraid it could happen again. Um, and the rest of the babysitters continued to babysit for Betsy, but they kind of tried to fight fire with fire. 
Mm-hmm. So all the no, no, they start a war, Anne. Oh yeah, yes. they start a war. <laughs> they did use the word war um, yes. by trying to play, you know, one up Betsy with practical jokes. There's also the Pikes are really into jokes because the beginning of the book, it, there's like a prank film festival that all the kids go to, and so slapstick. also slapstick, right? I don't know what, whatever. Sure, <laughs> you're gonna have to explain to me what that is at some point. We can wait till we get to <laughs> the and section of the episode, yeah. but mm-hmm. and so all the kids are, especially the Pikes, are like interested in jokes. So like the it. And these two things coincidentally happen at the same time. First, the girls all go to this slapstick comedy festival, and then suddenly they have a new practical joke sitting charge. Right. But the, but practical joke fever is sort of sweeping through Stony Brook. It's not just Betsy. Right. But she's the most notorious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I could go a lot of different directions here. What do you, what do you guys want to know? Well, can we just talk about, like, what the fuck is up with practical jokes first? Like, more generally speaking? And you had a question about them that I forget. Yeah, it was, why do you, like, what's the psychology behind people thinking they're funny? Because mm. it's basically tricking people mm-hmm. and kind of like embarrassing someone else at the pleasure of the trick player. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like what, um, and is there a certain type of personality that is apt to play practical jokes? Okay, so I'll start with the first one of like why people like them. And I think why people like them as children is different from why people may like them as adults. So bear with me for a second. I think developmentally, an interest in practical jokes is pretty normative. And so um, even though I think, Emily, you're very much on the side of like, they suck. I've never liked practical jokes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but for, They're too for mean. most kids, for most kids thinking you know, some some form of them is funny is very common. And I know Anne liked them when she was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I mean, I, I was just thinking I did like a whoopee cushion. You did love a whoopee cushion. But I feel like that's pretty innocent. Like no yeah. one's getting hurt. It's like Well, depending uh-huh. on how prone to Except, embarrassment you are. Yeah, right? your whole intro to the question was like the whole purpose of them is to embarrass people. And then you're like, well, except this one kind of embarrassing is that's fine. Fake farts. I love fake farts. I mean farts <laughs> are funny. <laughs> I I think that you were more into them than you're uh, I, I as someone who was the victim of some and yeah. practical well, jokes. Well, also, children. I had an older brother. Oh yeah, that's true. Aaron was not into practical jokes mm-hmm. either. Neither of us were. Well, it is you know other than the exceptional Crandall women, it is it is very common that kids um, go through a stage of being interested in them, and they serve a couple purposes. So one is um, a lot of different developmental stages in childhood are about sort of subverting norms and giving kids power that they don't normally have, right? So if you think about a child in society, they're kind of stuck. Like they they have to do things that all of the adults around them want them to do. They don't have a way to earn money. They don't have a way to feed themselves, all this kind of stuff. And so if you play a practical joke, if you think about something like April's Fool's Day, you play a practical joke on your teacher or your parent, and it's a little bit socially sanctioned, you kind of have the upper hand for a minute. And there's something sort of thrilling and reinforcing about that, right? Does that, that make sense? You're doing a thing that you're not normally supposed to do. You're sort of yeah. taking back that power. Um, so that's one one thing that's appealing about them. Um, another is that they are kind of a simple form of comedy, right? And so when you don't have a lot, like you don't have a lot of the verbal skills yet to do like a, 
great pun or like some wordplay or something like that, you can like make some duty noises with a whoopee cushion and then you like everybody laughs. Right. So it's a it's a natural extension of um, kind of the very common sort of three to five year old potty humor phase. Right. If it's a if it's like you chewed the gum and it tasted like pepper and you didn't know, ha ha ha. Like you don't have to come up with a brilliant setup for that joke. It's just, and it's, and it's told that it's a joke. So you, you have a, a simpler way to make humor, mm-hmm. um, which is why they tend to be pretty popular from like seven to 10, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Betsy's eight. So that makes sense to me. Um, the other piece of it is a little more complex. And I don't know if you, you all remember, forget what episode we talked about, but we talked before about the affiliative nature of teasing um, and how like usually people tease um, people as they get older, people tease people they're close to. I think we talked about this in, was it Claudia and the Phantom phone calls? Cause it was about Alan Gray. I feel. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. About Alan and, yeah. So that like younger kids tease people they don't like as a like way of showing out group, but around middle school, it starts to become an affiliative thing where you only tease people that you're really close to. And as an adult, if you were like, you know, nice pants, Carol, that would be really, really mean if you didn't, if you weren't friends with the person. Right. Um, but you can do that. Hey, with people that you're nice shirt. Thanks. Yeah, you That's the me. exact same joke you made last time. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. I can only see the upper half of Esme's body, so I can't. That's all I have to go on right now. That, that, I mean, I'm tall. This is not. This is like a quarter of my body that you can see. Anyway, so, um, so practical jokes uh, can serve a similar purpose. Can serve to because the 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 goal of them generally is to embarrass, right? It's not actually to endanger, right? This is why the the you know, titular bad joke in this book is bad joke, right? Because Betsy doesn't get the line. And we can talk a little bit about her more specifically in a minute. Um, But there's a big difference between having Claudia sit on a whoopee cushion and having Claudia fly off of a swing and break her femur, right? So uh, practical jokes, as I I would say, they're sort of intended um, to create a mild embarrassment or a mild shame response. The purpose of shame evolutionarily is to keep us in our in-group. So the reason we have shame is to stop people from doing things that would get them kicked out of the tribe, so to speak. So if you kill, um, you know, whatever beast is near you where your tribe lives to eat and you eat the whole thing yourself, you eat the whole buffalo, um, your tribe is going to get mad at you. I can't believe you're giving an evolutionary (laughs) justification for this. Why not? Stick with me. Stick with me. Um, you, cause you need that you need your in-group to survive. Right. And so if you were super selfish and ate the whole wildebeest or whatever, people would reject you at least for a period of time. And if they totally rejected you, you'd be out on your own and you would not have the protections of the tribe and you could actually die. So, and shame serves that function. So if you do something that is quote unquote wrong, that would get you kicked out of your group, you feel shame. And so, um, but doing mild shame things and then being re-welcomed by the group strengthens bonds. So the idea with a, a not too far practical joke, we'll stick with Anne's favorite, the whoopee cushion, is, you know, if the three of us 
could see each other in person again someday. And I put a whoopee cushion on Anne's chair and Anne sits on it. She makes her little fart noise and we all laugh. She's like super mildly embarrassed, but it's also like we're close enough that I can make Anne sit on a whoopee cushion and she can have mm-hmm. this mild embarrassment and immediately be welcomed back. So I wouldn't be I- embarrassed about that. Right. No, you would just think it was funny. But that's the but that's the point. Right. It's because it's in the right context. Whereas Mm -hmm. like if you went on a job interview and someone laid out a whoopee cushion, that would be a really weird antisocial thing to do. Or if like I went on a job interview and I pushed my interviewer down the stairs and they broke their leg. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Not socially acceptable. (laughs) And I think that's a bad joke. Yeah. But you get where there's some nuance here, right? right. So do, do you, you see how that could be helpful in strengthening bonds if if it didn't go too far, if it was in the right line, if it was something in the same way that teasing can be. I think mm-hmm. we, you know, the three of us are pretty verbal people. So we're more likely to do that kind of thing through through quips and teasing and stuff like that. But not everybody communicates that way. But I think the different thing about teasing is that, at least from my perspective, like you tend to tease some buddy at least that you love and who has a good sense of humor about themselves about things that are true and that's where the line is right like when you tease some somebody about something they're sensitive about or that is like an uh, exaggeration or a stretch of the truth or like not true those things are hurtful but when like somebody does something that is like commonly shared and and it's funny right or they do it in a funny way and like that's the subject of teasing that's different than like physically embarrassing somebody I think right but I do think that depends on temperament right and it depends Mm -hmm. on how you accumulate how you communicate you know Mm -hmm. so we're like three women who play with words in some way shape or form for our living right right through mostly talking you both through writing um that's a comfortable mode that's a comfortable mode of communication but if you're like you know some stereotypically cisgender dudes on a soccer team together, it might be easier to, you know, highlight those affiliative bonds through humor with a physical gag of some kind. And it Mm -hmm. might not be perceived as more embarrassing because it's like a comfortable mode of communication for that group of Hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Do you at least buy that as a theory, even though you're not like it doesn't speak to you, Emily? Fine. That's the best I can get out of her. (laughs) Um, Also, since you just mentioned like a guy's soccer team, is it, I feel like these types of jokes are more like, like men tend to like them better Mm -hmm. than women. Mm -hmm. And is there something like, is there like, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I think that that's true. I didn't I didn't find any specific research on that. Um, I was sort of I kind of there's there's a rich psychology literature on humor. Um, There's not as much specifically on practical jokes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, going along stereotyped gendered lines, I would make that assumption partly because of just the, the ways you know, this goes back to like relational versus physical aggression, too. Right. So if we're talking about that line. Um, between like affiliative teasing and mean teasing, right? That's like, you know, pro-social teasing goes over into relational aggression. And I think like effective practical jokes could go over into physical aggression and fighting. Mm -hmm. And so generally speaking, those would belong to, you know, males and females. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not, you know, it wouldn't necessarily hold up per an individual, right? But I think on average, you're probably right. I know, it's like how... 
men think the Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers are like hilarious. And literally, yeah. I'm like, I, I yeah. don't get it. You know? Yeah. Mike I mean, Groucho's funny because like, he's quippy. Yeah. Mike has saw like a 30 second clip of like the Marx Brothers on mm-hmm. something. And he was like laughing so hard. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I, he's like, can we watch that? And I was like, no. No, I'm gonna watch that. <laughs> I do I do yeah. appreciate when something has when comedy has a good physical dimension to it, but not when it's yes. something someone doing something to someone else. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. Like a like a classic like Chevy Chase or Ross Prattfall. Um, yeah. That, or even the my, the yeah. like mannerisms that accompany s- something that's Right, that the, sometimes the mannerisms make something a make a situation funny rather than mm-hmm. just like a joke being delivered or something like that. And I I like I find that that suits my sense of humor. But like when it's when it's a joke at someone or a trick on someone, I'm less likely to find that amusing. Yeah, I agree. I, that makes sense to me, Emily. I think go, going back to the sex differences question i didn't i didn't find any literature on that specifically um but i did find an article from 2008 looking at um where opinions about and enjoyment of practical jokes exist in the brain i don't know why people got money to do this study no offense but they did um like electroencephalographic recordings so eegs of people's yes of course i electroencephalographic Oh, see, there we go. EEG. You've heard of an EEG. Um, whatever, black feminist epistemology. Um, <laughs> the, uh, they had people talk about whether or not they liked practical jokes and actually watch video of practical jokes. And then they recorded what like circuits in the brain light up while they're doing that. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> and there's not like. Yeah. What are we uh, supposed to learn from that? What happened? What were the I results? Mean, I would have to uh, talk to you about a lot of very specific brain. Oh, they did functional magnetic resonance imaging too, fMRI. It's really like some parts are about cognition so that you can comprehend the joke. Um, And um, it's, uh, you know, you really want to hear about like different temporal, parietal and central regions. So if they watch a video of Claudia flying off to swing and falling with like their brain like light up in different places. I mean, anytime you do anything, your brain lights up in different places. Mm-hmm. But with like but the there are thoughts about whether or not it's funny um, are different from your experience of the joke in the moment. Mm. Basically, the experience huh. of the joke in the moment lights up more with some of the emotion centers of the brain, and the cognition centers are involved in interpreting the joke. That makes but sense. They did, you know, it was a really small n, and so it was only like twelve people. I think four women, eight men. So I think they didn't really have much to say about gender differences. Well, let's talk about Betsy's brain. Yeah, what the fuck is her deal? What's wrong with her? <laughs> wow, coming in hot for Betsy so bad. I mean... Okay, I'm going to remind both Anne, Emily, and our listeners that Betsy is eight years old. Um, and so in my position as a child psychologist, I'm going to assume no malintent and uh, evilness on her part. But as me as a is, Betsy apologist in addition am, to a I Logan am, apologist. <laughs> I am a child apologist, of, of okay. which Logan is also one. Remember, they're 13. <laughs> so anyway, I think a couple different things are going on with Betsy. So just review, what do we learn about her more generally? Not just that she likes jokes, but we we know 
what do we know about her beyond the fact that she likes jokes? I mean, her mom seems kind of absent. Mm-hmm. Okay. She has she ha- she has a much older sibling. Right. She's, she's a much aunt. older sibling who's not in the house anymore. So she's sort of a functional only child like I was growing up. She doesn't have very many friends at school. Yeah, I think she has no friends at school. Well, because she mm-hmm. tricked them all. Right. So we'll we'll get to that part. And she has, you know, has been able to spend a lot of money on McBuzz's mail order catalog and has lots of <laughs> practical joke aids. Right. Yeah. So they're also, rich. she dresses like Punky Brewster. She does dress like Punky Brewster? Well, when Claudia meets her for the first time, she opens the door. She kind of like, she's like wearing suspenders and like. Oh, yeah. yeah like a red, a, red, oh, like pants and red suspenders. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that. She's got a great outfit, doesn't she? I'm sorry. Detour from the psychology for just a second. Because I feel like I'm I'm into Betsy's outfit. <laughs> I, I would have liked this outfit. Okay. Friendly looking girl with brown hair, which had been pulled into two ponytails and tied with big blue ribbons. She was wearing a very snazzy pair of red pants that were held up by red suspenders. Under the suspenders was a blue and white striped t-shirt. The legs of her pants ended in cuffs and on her feet were running shoes tied with purple laces. Wow. That's good stuff. That's good stuff in 1988. Okay. What's the deal with Betsy? So going with this idea of practical jokes meaning to be affiliative, I think, and I, I don't know why Betsy doesn't have good social skills. There are lots of only children that do have good social skills. So I'm not going to pin that on her being an only child. Um, it may be, I don't really know her history, if they've moved, if they, you know, or if she had difficulties when she was younger. Some kids just don't have great social skills. Some kids, it may be because of another diagnosis. You know, she might have some kind of learning problems. She might have ADHD, um, something that gets in the way. We don't see a lot of evidence for that in this book. But my guess is that she's attempting to make overtures to, to gain friendships through the practical jokes and doesn't understand that delicate line that we're talking about, about when is it affiliative versus when does it push people away and when does it mean? Mm-hmm. And so especially when they're in the movie theater at the end and she sees all of these classmates and Christy is like, oh, why don't you go say hi? And it turns out she's played tricks on all of them some of which are really quite mean, like tying their shoelaces together so they like fall down on their face in the gym. I think that she probably, the reason that she's made these jokes is that she doesn't have other good skills. Like she doesn't have other ways to connect with other kids. And McBuzz's seems like a shortcut. And so she gets these ideas that like, if she does this, it will be funny. And then kids will like her and want to spend time with her. Um, Mm. And and she doesn't have another skill set to lean on. But I don't know if I buy that because she otherwise seems like a sweet kid. Two quasi-adults that she's talking to. You know, there are a lot of kids that are really good at talking to adults or babysitters or other authority figures that don't know how to connect with their peers. But then Mm -hmm. why is she also punking her babysitters? Because I think she doesn't really know how to connect in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the, like, yeah, you can be polite, but that's not a connection, right? Sure. Um, and I think she knows like the right way to be polite, but that doesn't, that doesn't make friends and that doesn't make people close. But like, she gets all excited about reciting poems with Mallory, like presumably, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I get, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, but it's also, if it didn't work with her, I feel like she's lost friends doing this. Mm -hmm. So then why is she doing it? Why does she keep on doing it? Because she doesn't have other skills. 
But I guess we don't know whether she like had friends first or not. Right. Exactly. My hypothesis would be no. So your hypothesis is that she starts practical jokes as a way to try to make friends and then that further alienates her. And but she doesn't know any other way to connect with people. So she keeps doing it. Yep. Hmm. I think if she had friends and lost the man, you're absolutely right. That would be a learning piece. Mm-hmm. Right. But because she's never had them. She's she not learning. She's not learning. Because she's yeah. just like, well, why isn't this working? The catalog says it's hilarious. Like, crack up your friends and family. And I mm-hmm. think it's hilarious. So maybe these people just aren't the right friends for me. Instead of looking at like, oh, maybe actually I'm hurting people right. and upsetting them. So when do like, when do kids start to be aware of making friends? What do you mean by aware of making friends? Well, I'm, like, like I want to make friends and I want friends. Because I'm you, thinking she's eight. She's eight. So let's say she started, you know, started being in school around five. Mm-hmm. And then maybe like in preschool and kindergarten, she didn't really have any friends. But maybe she didn't care then because... Yeah, preschool yeah. and kindergarten is more that's that's a time of what we call parallel play. So kids like to be around each other and they right. play next to each other, but they're not necessarily engaging in the same activity. Right. So I was thinking like, is it like around seven or eight when kids are being like, Oh, I wanna have a friend. But yeah. is that also true for kids that grow up around other kids? Is that true for all kids? You mean in terms of uh, parallel play, you mean? Yeah, I just I feel like we grew up with so many other kids that like our parents, friends, kids we would play with. And I feel like I have strong like memories of of affiliation that are er very early. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it just the way that affiliation looks through play is different when we're younger. Right. So we don't know. Mm -hmm. Like three don't have the vocabulary to tell us like the, the, like how, like we can't study what a three-year-old really thinks about their friendships, right? Right. Right. What they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, that is not to say that three-year-olds don't have close bonds. Um, but I think, Anne, you're not talking about like, do they make bonds? You're talking about, do they seek out and want friendships specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Or like they definitely make bonds earlier, Mm -hmm. but like, is it a goal? Um, I think that varies to kid. Mm. But definitely by because I was just thinking like if Betsy is eight, when did she start? Like maybe she didn't have friends in first grade or something, mm. and then in second grade she's like, oh, like I'm gonna start playing these practical jokes on kids to try to mm-hmm. like, you know, have some, create some sort of bond. Yeah, I think that varies t- um, day to day. I also don't I don't mean to imply that Betsy is like. I know, here's what I'll do. You know, I don't know that she has that much metacognition about this. Right, right, right. You know, I think it's just the thing that occurs to her and it's a thing that she enjoys. And so she thinks other people would enjoy it. And she's confused as to why it's not working. Interesting. I buy that. Great. I was thinking, (laughs) I've been doing this bit lately about my own sense of humor. I think of myself as a very funny person. Um, that's up for debate, you know, like who's the funny one. It's like a constant discussion. Rarely does anyone say that that it's me except me, (laughs) but I realized recently, so my sense of humor tends to be in the, the bit and quip realm rather than the trick realm or a joke realm even. Uh, Listeners and, to this podcast won't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but I realized recently that I also spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time playing with kids as a kid, but also a lot of time talking to adults and particularly 
my father's like hippy dippy friends who I now realize were all probably massively stoned every time we would all hang, hang out together in the afternoons. And I realized that like I spent a lot of time with adults who would kind of like let me talk and listen to me talk and like interact with me and like laugh. And Mm -hmm. which was very affirming to my ability to make jokes verbally. But I I realize now that, like, of course, a kid talking at you is funny when you're like massively stoned in the (laughs) middle of the afternoon. (laughs) So, like, maybe my sense of humor is overly inflated (laughs) thanks to marijuana. (laughs) That's really funny. That's really funny. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. What's going on with Claudia in this book? Yeah, great question. So like, her psychologically her, speaking, I mean. <laughs> yeah, her initial her initial comment is sort of like babysitting is too dangerous and what if I broke my hand and I could never draw again and it's not worth the risk. Which is something that I remember people like Anne and I went to high school with this kid Chris Palaki who was like a nationally ranked saxophonist and I remember he wouldn't do like potentially dangerous things cuz he was worried about breaking his hand. Really? Like change the trajectory of his life. Yeah. Wow. I remember having a conversation with him about that. And I was like, oh, no part of me is that valuable. <laughs> like, I don't... Yeah. I never thought about anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, Esme's a psychologist and she's had a concussion recently. Anyway, so I thought that that I remember striking me as as legitimate early on, but I was looking as I was rereading this with this kind of psychology eye, I was looking for any indication that Claudia had like acute stress disorder, which is basically what PTSD is before it's been going on for a long time. So after a traumatic event, um, you know, you have a lot of the symptoms of PTSD, but it's within 30 days. And so it's sort of more of a normative response. And then it kind of goes away on its own for most people. But we really don't have that. We don't hear or see other symptoms. You know, she's not having nightmares about it. She's not having flashbacks. She's not generally hypervigilant. She's actually pretty good at avoiding thinking about it. But she just has this idea in the back of her mind, maybe I should quit babysitting. And we get some good, like, wise Mimi counsel in this book that she can't just sit forever in limbo and she has to make a decision and you can't control everything in the environment. So I found it like sort of believable that that was her worry. But then by the end of the book, it becomes clear that actually she was embarrassed and she like felt, I think it was less about the injury itself and more about her feeling out of control and feeling like um, outfoxed when she was babysitting and that that she didn't like that feeling. Um, Mm -hmm. That sort of embarrassment gone wrong with a practical joke and that that was too intense and that was something that she wanted to avoid, Um, which I which I thought was a pretty nuanced trajectory. I think it would have been easier to make it sort of an acute stress response and have her be actively very fearful. But she says that a couple of times, but we really don't see the symptoms and we don't see the evidence of that. So the right, she's like, I want to walk yeah. with my crutches up the stairs, like right, I'm chilling, yeah, yeah. The the embarrassment explanation actually, I thought, made more sense by the by the end of the book. Wait, so you just said that she avoids it in a way that was good. Is it is oh, avoiding it thinking effective? Oh, effective. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, meaning uh. Uh, that's a if you're asking is avoidance good that's a that's a very that's a big question <laughs> say, say I wasn't not asking that <laughs> um I think I have it, no personal know. investment in the answer that you give to this whatsoever 
I will say that psychological avoidance gets a bad reputation because we have this sort of neo-Freudian legacy in our culture that all emotions should be talked about and that is the healthy thing to do, which has no evidence at all behind it. Um, It's not good to bottle your emotions that you desperately want to talk about, but you also don't have to examine every emotion when you have it um, and you know, bleh, say, say all of your emotions to everybody all the time. There's nothing inherently healthy about that. So in, in dialectical behavior therapy, we talk about effectiveness more broadly and, um, evaluating using your effectiveness skill to be, when is the right time to be exploring and experiencing this emotion? And sometimes mm-hmm. you can't, ha- it, it, it gets in your way to have a big emotion at a time when it's not effective for you. So if you, are about to go take a really important test that's in line with your long-term goals. You know, you're taking the SAT, even though it's bad in lots of ways, but it's important to you because you want to go to a certain college and you get dumped like an hour before. If you have the ability to put the information that you got dumped on a shelf and avoid it effectively, push it Mm -hmm. away and say, I'm going to deal with this later and go take your test, that is effective. That doesn't mean that you're like emotionally not legitimate, then you can cry and eat your ice cream and be miserable after the test. But you have to be able to, it's called, it's like being able to engage in non-mood directed behavior. Like, Mm. can you do the things you need to do even when you feel emotions? Um, So that's why I said that she was fairly effective at times because she was like focusing on recovery and, and not just like sitting and panicking. Whereas if she had an acute stress disorder, I don't think she could have done that. Right. I, so I don't think Claudia had a disorder. I think it was shame. And I think that it was nice that they I think it's easier to engage with like fear and with these intellectual ideas that babysitting is dangerous than admit that she was ashamed and embarrassed. Mm-hmm. That's an idea of, that's a what's called a primary and a secondary emotion. Right. So her actual emotion was shame. That's really aversive. Humans don't like to feel shame and embarrassment, which I think is part of why. Emily came out hot, like no practical jokes are ever funny. We really don't enjoy that emotion. And so Claudia would want to avoid that emotion. And so it's easier to say like, oh, it's too dangerous. I can't control it. It's scary. Okay. Can we talk about how the babysitters deal with Betsy? (laughs) Yeah. Which is basically they just decide to go to war with her. Yeah. Yeah. I do not think they kept in mind that she is indeed a child very well in this this book. Yeah, dude. Christy embarrasses the shit out of her it's like yeah. pretty gnarly yeah i mean what would be the um i'm trying to think if i was babysitting a kid and they did all those things to me like what mm-hmm. i would do mm-hmm. and i was kind of like oh i don't know what i would do because she is only eight mm-hmm. but also they're being a total shithead <laughs> like you have to teach them a lesson somehow but yeah oh no i was trying to think like what would i do if someone like repeatedly played prank after prank on me like five times within like two hours, I don't know what I would do. So I was thinking about what Stacy would do if she was trying to try out her weird like, what did we call that? The thing that she did to the spoiled kids? Negative reinforcement? Yeah, yeah. Like how would you negative reinfo- negatively reinforce not playing practical jokes? Yeah, I guess I, I that's what I was thinking is, is not necessarily – I don't think you need to use negative reinforcement. I think just – I would make it really clear, like at the beginning, especially if it was this babysitter's club situation, right? So let's say it's the first time I'm sitting for her, but I knew what she'd done to Mallory and Dawn and whoever. And I would just say, hey, um, I don't like practical jokes. I am happy to do 
kind of anything you want this afternoon, as long as you're not playing practical jokes. When you play practical jokes, you can sit in your room and read on your yeah. own for 20 minutes. And then when you're done, we can try again. Um, but we're not going to do that. And then I would actively ignore practical jokes uh, or practical joke setups. I would do what a lot of them did and be vigilant and not like give her the chance to do practical jokes. Like she's not serving me any food. That's for sure. Don't know why everyone didn't learn that very early. Um, (laughs) And then um, really reinforce her when she's not doing jokes. So um, which I think they had some lost opportunities on, like the the point you guys mentioned with the poems, like Mallory's thinking to herself, like, oh, this is lovely. I'm enjoying this conversation about poetry with Betsy. She could have said that. She could have said, wow, I really like talking about this with you, Betsy. This is really cool. When Betsy went to get the book, Betsy has not earned going to do things on her own. I would have said, great, I'll, I'm coming with you and followed her to get the book taught like, this is really great. I love talking about poetry with you. Why don't we write our own poems and we can illustrate them like, I, you know, and just giving a lot of positive attention whenever she's not joking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds tiring. Yeah. Yeah. Being an effective behaviorist is tiring. So that's how I would deal with her. I don't, I, I do think that the escalation was a little bit cruel, although I, I get Christy's logic, right? So she was, she was saying, you know, she had this thought in her head of Betsy doesn't get why this is mean. Like she's still not getting it. And like, as they saw the other kids, I, you know, I sort of get Christy's calculus. Again, Christy is also a child, right? Um, I get her calculus of like, oh, all of these other kids are mad at her and don't like her anymore. And she still doesn't understand it. This is a good opportunity for me to show her how awful it is. And Can we talk about people. one other Christy thing? Yeah. What do we make of at the beginning, this thing where like the book opens with her being like, oh, I'd love to get a pie in the face. And then she's like, I mean, wearing food. And then Claudia does this thing like, oh, that's always been something Christy's been interested in or found funny, like wearing food. What is that? <laughs> she's just way ahead of her time. She anticipated uh, Lady Gaga's meat dress, I feel like. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's that about? <laughs> I, I That is not real psychology. I don't have a take on that. Anne? Great. <laughs> No, I, I mean, I feel like Christy um, and like just her, like, I feel like Anna Martin associates her with the food a lot, just like gross out things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just like part of that. Mm. But anyway, enough about <laughs> stupid practical jokes and this bitch Betsy. Oh, wow. Wow. Emily. What do you think Cookie Sobak discusses at her women's club? Oh my god. Like, okay, well they're obviously rich, right? I mean, I don't I don't get that they're like Watson rich. Yeah, but their 8-year-old like is personally responsible for the existence of this practical joke magazine. <laughs> so like catalog, mail order catalog. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's a feminist women's club. I think it's like a a no. rotary situation. Like they're going to throw some sort of fundraiser and like ooh, maybe they even like have their kids doing like debutante balls and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Maybe. I don't I don't think it's like a a women's club I would want to go to. No. Um What do you think cookie is short for? Ooh. I have no idea. Cocaine. Her name is Cocaine Sobek. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. I'm sure. sure what would it be name. short for? I like. I, I can't. I literally can't think of anything. Courtney. 
No. Yeah, but a woman in her 30s in 1988 is not going to be named Courtney. I feel like it's got to be something that's older. Cornelia? Hmm. Maybe. Or maybe it's just like totally, maybe her name's like Rebecca, but they started calling her Cookie when she was young and it stuck. Mm. If we have any cookies that are listeners, tell us how you got your name. That's true. I'd like to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the cookies. Uh, what else? What else did you notice, Em? Really not much. I was very preoccupied by how little I find practical jokes amusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there wasn't much sort of sociopolitical stuff in this. There's like the sort of emotional landscape of the book was the primary kind of center. Yeah, of it. yeah. that's mm-hmm. fair. I do think given the deterioration of our healthcare safety net, I don't think Claudia would get a full week in the hospital now. Oh, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing. I think that that, you know, served in that Mr. Rogers vein when this first Although, came out to like help kids who were in the hospital for a long time. But I don't think that that would be the experience now. Yeah. Although I'd be curious to know if they were in a public or a private hospital. And mm-hmm. like, I feel like the Kishis today would have decent health insurance. But like, yeah, but I still think like the default the premiums not- would be too high. Right. And you wouldn't yeah. spend, they wouldn't recommend even that long because they've tried right. to cut things down. Because, you know, Mrs. Kishi's a librarian. Sure. But there's probably also advancements in like how they would treat a broke, like it probably doesn't need to sit in that thing for a week anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. They would have right. some other way That's of good. of setting mm-hmm. it that wouldn't mm-hmm. require laying in a hospital bed in a machine for a week. But yeah, I think like both innovations in healthcare provision and the sort of evacuating of the (laughs) insurance landscape would both contribute to a lessened hospital stay for sure. Have either of you broken a bone before? No. 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 But Aaron has a lot. A lot. And my sister has. Mm -hmm. And my child, June, who is a mini Aaron, also has. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't broken a bone either, Annie? I dislocated my elbow. What? I was wondering about the Sobax policy of not paying Christy her full babysitting fee when she takes Betsy to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang because she's getting a, quote, free movie out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's um, exploitation. I don't know what else to yeah, tell you about it. A little, a little cheap. They're like, they should pay her her full wage, if not extra. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. For having to watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a 13-year-old yeah. in 1988. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Wait, Emily, do, have you seen this movie? I have actually I sure. seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But like a long, long, long time ago, I don't have many memories of it. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm pretty sure there's a car that flies. <laughs> pretty much it. <laughs> well, the, yeah. no, there's the terrifying villain whose name is actually the child catcher. Oh, I probably blocked that out of my mind because I don't like scary things. <laughs> I don't like scary and I don't like practical jokes. <laughs> Do you remember the child catcher, Anne? Vaguely, I do. I, I remember really liking that movie as a kid. Mm. Did you like it? Yeah, I remember liking it as a kid, but then I um, rented it for my kids a few years ago. And look, Dick Van Dyke is a national treasure. This is no shade on Dick Van Dyke. Everything he does is beautiful. The rest of the movie is real weird. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I did. I mean... I found it interesting is when they were talking about the different movies that were playing during this little film festival for kids Mm. that, you know, Anna Martin mentions the power trap a lot and obviously Mary Poppins and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So I just, I did like a quick, like how old she was when each one of these movies came out. So she was six when the parent trap came out. 
she was nine when Mary Poppins came out, and she was 13 when Chitty Chitty Bang Bang came out. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like these are definitely, like, her childhood favorites. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's really interesting, though, because, like, I definitely loved all those movies as a kid, too. I would mm-hmm. say that they're sort of classic kids movies as defined by boomers but still classic kids movies Mm -hmm. and I I wonder if part of the reason that they were classic to me is because of their appearance in the babysitters club like I wonder Mm. if that further legitimized their classicness Hmm. yeah once again yeah yeah (laughs) as these preferences being formed by the BSC Third grade. Yeah. Um, At least I said preferences and not personality. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I just texted you both a picture of the child catcher. I think you should look at it. Oh my God. Horrifying. Why did you send that to me? (laughs) That is is scary. Wow. Um, And there were so many teen magazines in this. Yeah. Well, I guess um, Janine got Claudia some magazines to read while she's kind of has to rest and be in bed. Um, so she gave her people, Tiger <laughs> Is Bee. people a teen mag? No. No. It's no. like, a, okay. it's, I would say it's like more like a, I mean, I think in the late 80s, it was more of a gossip mag. Mm-hmm. I think now it's more like a human interest slash gossip mm-hmm. mag. Um, 17 and, and Vogue, which is, mm-hmm. you know, very fancy. I mean, Janine did a good job. She really hits on different kinds of magazines mm-hmm. um you got gossip you have like the teen heartthrob tiger beat was always i never really read tiger beat but it was just a bunch of collages of like right cute boys and like girls who were popular at the time yeah, to cut out and cute. like yeah most of cute guys yeah i was yeah, actually but... gonna ask you if tiger beat was real because i've never heard of it before <laughs> wow yeah, yeah. That was definitely yeah. real. It was, what do they have now? They have like J14. It was like the J14 yeah. of its time. It was super real. Lots of different spreads of each member of New Kids on the Block and like mm-hmm. Ralph Macchio and like yeah. people like I mean, that. Yeah. New Kids on the Block for sure. That was mm-hmm. like huge. And I just remember uh, Summer Pantages and Tiffany Nichols mm-hmm. with like, cut out pictures of them and like put them all over their notebooks and binders and stuff. Right. And they would like sign their name like yeah. Summer Knight and Tiffany McIntyre and stuff. Yeah. Yep. 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 Mm. Um 17 more uh has more content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As me and I definitely read 17 mm-hmm. um as young teenagers and they always had the like um what was it? Was it like the embarrassing story section? It happened to me. It happened to me. Yeah. That was the best. That was the best, you know. See? So yeah. reading about other people's embarrassment is is validating. And, yeah. you know. But they weren't writing about like practical jokes played on them. Sometimes I think they were. I was really? more of the type to destroy myself by reading like chicken soup for the teenage soul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God just okay okay. this may be (laughs) the starkest gen x versus millennial example we've had on the podcast so far you think i don't think because because that's just so like gen x we're we're prone to embarrassment like that's so embarrassing like no i feel like no gen x person would want to read chicken soup for the teenage soul oh no millennial would either like nobody (laughs) wants to admit that now the fact that i 
felt oh. comfortable enough to. <laughs> We're gonna get comments. We're gonna get comments that other people read that. But I think like really? at the time, as teenagers, we wouldn't have gone anywhere. I mean, it didn't exist when we were teenagers. But what was but even in that? I don't even like. I've never read any of those books before. Oh, I mean, it's horrifying. It's just like re- the most devastating stories that you can think of, like loss, like oh, like just everything, everything horrible. And then you just like sob and cry and sob and cry, and then you like sleep for two days. But it's supposed to make you feel good, like chicken it's soup. Be heartwarming, right? Because it's like human adversity. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It was devastating. Like I think so so I have this ongoing argument with one of my best friends Lizzie who loves to read novels that are utterly devastating and I have a total aversion to that now and I think it's because I consumed so much chicken soup for the teenage soul when I was a teenager that like I don't want to feel like that anymore. <laughs> Too much soup. You used up your ability to read like legitimate literature that contains bad things in it. No, but I think it's because I get too devastated. Like things that are devastating, like utterly devastate me. I find them debilitating. Like I can't think about anything else. I can't move. Like it's like make, I don't know. It's weird. I'm very affected. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I get, I, yes, I'm with you. I'm impressed that Lizzie can still do that given that she's an immigration lawyer. I used to be able to read stuff like that before I started working with suicidal people all the time. And now I can't do that anymore. That makes sense. So, Hmm. yeah. But so when did, when did teen magazines become like a thing? I mean, pretty early on, Mm -hmm. like 17 is, I believe like the oldest one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like around. I don't. I'm not sure when it started, but I'm guessing it was around in in the 50s. So, mm-hmm. hang on. 1944. Damn, that's early. Okay. Yeah, and there there are like um, there have always been like teen teen publications out there. Mm-hmm. You know, from I would say yeah, from from the 40s and 50s on. But you know, there's some interesting scholarship in kind of like sort of radical feminist scholarship that talks about the creation of the category of childhood as like a social formation. And that like the idea that like the period of time that is teen is like a relatively contemporary invention. Like there wasn't teenagehood in like early industrial capitalism, for example, that that's like a kind of outgrowth of a, of a different sort of economic arrangement where there's more of an emphasis placed on extended childhood and like broader education that prepares you generally for the world and rather than uh, siphons you explicitly into like a factory role, for example. But I wonder if like the creation of teenagehood and the rise of like things marketed to teens happened around the same time. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just diving in a little bit to the history of teen magazines so that they, um, Girl Scouts had their mm-hmm. own magazines um, as early as the 20s, but they only went to membership members mm-hmm. um, and aimed at the older girls at, at teens in, in the Girl Scouts. But um, there was a column in Parents Magazine for teens in mm-hmm. 1941 that inspired them to make a separate magazine so the first quote-unquote first teen girls magazine is called calling all girls and came out in 1941 but then 17 was it was published intermittently it looked like so 17 was kind of the next one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 17 doesn't exist in print anymore yeah almost nothing does yeah yeah i don't think i mean teen magazines 
Um, there used to be a lot of them. There was a 17, YM, um, and then like, well, teen was one too. And then, yeah, there was 16. Yeah, there were 16. And then there was like, sassy, well, don't sassy. forget sassy. Well, I'm trying to go chronologically. Oh. Okay. Um, then there was like even like teen people. Um, there was, uh, what was it called? Well, L Girl, the one I worked at. And then there was, well, Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue. Yeah. I feel like L Girl was the daughter of Sassy in many ways. Yes. It definitely was. Yeah. But it's like, it's interesting how there's not, well, it's just like because of internet and social media that, you know, magazines for everyone used to be this, like, everyone was kind of looked to them as the source of culture Mm -hmm. and newness. And now people just kind of like find that on their own through a bunch of different vehicles and platforms. Um, but yeah, I miss the like idea that like all all teen girls would read one of or two of six different publications. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like formed this like commonality between between everyone. Right. And there's there's a dark side to that, of course, that um, you know, in terms of most obviously eating disorders, but lots of other kind of hegemony and lack mm-hmm. of representation and all kinds of problems that that could have to sort of make girls mm-hmm. that don't fit in the boxes represented in those magazines feel left out. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of bonus of the internet being a wider place for those reasons. But I do agree. And similar to the way that everybody watches streaming now, I mean, you get together with a group of people, mine and Anne's age, and we can all sing the same sitcom theme songs, you know, like we've all watched the same things, but like my kids are watching. singing the Almond Joy commercial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, my kids aren't watching the same things as all of their friends because right. there's just too many things, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so there's not these sort of like generational touchstones and experiences that, that everybody go through, everybody goes through in the same way. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is Teen Vogue, which is now known as a very progressive, you know, publication or, you know, website. It didn't start out like that. Like, it was a very, like, focused on socialites of New York City and daughters of rich people in New York City. And that's, you know, and it's interesting that L Girl and Teen Vogue kind of started at the same time. And L Girl at the time was like the antithesis to... Mm-hmm. to teen vogue like we were like anti that and it was more about like like we try to be as subculture as we could for a mainstream magazine mm-hmm. and try like our whole like tagline was dare to be different um and then like teen vogue is more like they did this like you know in my bedroom thing but they were all girls who live on like the upper east side and like really huge bedrooms that look like you know professionally designed by someone yeah and stuff but, you know, it's obviously now it's, like, changed. But it's just funny how, like, Owl Girl wasn't in at the time. But, like, mm-hmm. had we been, like, around now, it probably would have been much more successful. Well, I think you guys were try- – it's interesting because I think, you know, Sassy was that in the 90s when it was cool to be that mm-hmm. in the 90s. And I think that was almost, like – L girl was, you know, having, having read all of the issues because my best friend was the entertainment editor. Um, 
it was a very 90s publication in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it was like during this time of more conformity Mm -hmm. and more like, let's, you know, let's watch MTV Cribs and let's like, it was more kind of 80s, actually. It was more similar to this time period we're reading about. Like, let's, let's conform and wear the right kind of clothes and be rich. And so you guys were offering a counter to that at a time when the mainstream culture didn't really want a counter. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the magazines died and and yeah. you got laid off and El Girl ended. And then Teen Vogue filled that void at a time when it became more well, interesting Teen, to be that Teen again. Vogue is like a proper like lefty political rag now. I mean, I bet, yeah. I bet mm-hmm. we could find a Teen Vogue article for almost like everything I've talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Or like vaguely sort of thematically mm-hmm. linked articles. Yeah. Yeah. And like when that whole shift happened, I was like, what the fuck? Because it was just <laughs> like so different, like a total 180 from where from where they started. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it was also Teen Vogue with the counter Vogue and to counter the like kind of the establishment of Condé Nast of having mm-hmm. like GQ and like Vogue and like all these very like you know, um, targeted towards a wealthier white demographic. And they think they started to see that they were getting, and they are, they're getting, they're like outdated and they needed to evolve with the shifting of the culture. And I think Teen Vogue was their answer to that. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of inside stuff about this that I I can't really (laughs) say on air, but... (laughs) awful tease to our listeners i know okay what's something what's something before we leave this like from your time behind the scenes at l girl like what's something that you think the average person wouldn't know about how teen mags were made in the like 90s and 2000s i mean i can only speak i think l girl was a very specific atypical staff like Mm -hmm. it was my first like New York City job and my first like real professional job. And I was also like 23. Um, and everyone else I worked with was the same age. And we were kind of like like a ragtag team of <laughs> editors. And it like like having worked at a lot of different places now, it was not it was it was more like we were like putting together like a college scene <laughs> than a like a a publication of a big company kind of. But I mean, I would say just from my experience is that what I find interesting is throughout the decades, one thing is like people always try to figure out teens. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's just like even like now having worked at some teen like um, publications and now I work a lot. I do a lot of advertising that is targeted to teens. Mm -hmm. It's like interesting just to see how how people agonize over how to talk to teens. And I just don't think it's that complicated. People just yeah. like to make it complicated. Our and we're kind of like, that in common. yeah. And I'm like, well, like there's, and I think the cool thing about Algro is that we didn't think about it. Like mm-hmm. it was really just, we wrote about stuff that we thought was interesting at the time. Mm-hmm. Teens that, are people. Yeah, exactly. It's like teens are just, people like you don't you know and like now working in advertising I do all these like I do all this quote-unquote research about what teens want and like all this stuff and it's just so it's just kind of funny it's like adults really need to label to label teens and and, like and figure them out 
Um, Mm -hmm. But there isn't really, I don't know. It's like weird. It's it's like weird to analyze and think about something so much that you yourself were for like a pretty long time. (laughs) But as adults, you forget about it. I had one last sort of pop culture thing for you guys where I was thinking about, you know, what did you call the movies that they sell? The slapstick whatever things and... Mm. You, I've, as we've talked about, some of the a lot of the things that they see that they watch seem to be sort of boomer era things. And then I was thinking like punked was really big when I was a teenager, and I was wondering like what what was between that? Like was there something in the time that this book was coming out that would have been like the equivalent of a pop culture practical prank kind of touchstone or phenomena, or is was that like a dead time for it? I mean, I don't remember anything in that in between time Mm -hmm. i don't either i think it's you know we were in the golden age of sitcoms between you know some of the like candid camera was a practical joke show in the 60s that anna martin might have watched um and they they tried to revive it in the 80s but it wasn't a central thing and then reality tv comes along in the 90s which of course lends itself to this. That's so interesting. So you think it was the kind of advent of reality that brought practical jokes kind of back into the popular cultural stream? I think so. I don't Hmm. remember them. I remember like liking tricksters like Harry Anderson, who starred on Night Court, was really big. Um, Well, because he he started on, he was a like magician magician and a trick player and he started as like a cameo on cheers and then Mm -hmm. they gave him his own show and he wrote this book that i really liked when i was a kid called games you can't lose a guide for suckers it was like basically about how to trick people using games and statistics and stuff like that um oh wow no wonder you liked that yeah (laughs) but it was not it wasn't it wasn't mean-spirited it was like let me let you in on how i do these tricks kind of things Mm -hmm. um but like that was like one dude. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't. Yeah, like, I think interesting. Being a big part of the culture. Hmm. Yeah, I was just trying to think about like how how do we get to punked? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, punked has something in common with Candid Camera. Candid Camera also inspired a lot of social psychology stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's this one Candid Camera bit where they had everybody get into an elevator but not turn around, like stay facing the back of the elevator. Um, which, yeah, see the face you're making? It's like a very odd thing to do. And so then they would get an unsuspecting person who would get on the elevator that's already full with all the people facing backwards. And then you would just watch them sort of freak out um, because they don't know why everybody's facing the back. And they like look around and they look confused. And that led to research on conformity and on like how humans respond when everybody in a group acts the same way and stuff. Interesting. Weird. All right. And tell us about Claudia's candy in this Claudia book. <laughs> well, before we get into that, I wanted to point out like um, Marianne's signature on Claudia's cast. <laughs> <laughs> because when I read that, this is how I read it. I car cry. I car laugh. I think you want my car graph. And I was like, oh, it's auto, not car. <laughs> and who calls a car an auto? A person trying to write a, a riddle with pictures. <laughs> but like, does oh she just, like, how long did she think about that? So this is also a very old thing. This is something that rings, doesn't ring true to me for 80s. Like this is, you know, to, to have your quote unquote autograph be like a clever little thing. Like if we look in like my mom's yearbooks from Berkeley and her high school. From like the 1800s? School, yeah. 
<laughs> from the Kidding. 50s. A lot of people see now you're going to be on the shit list with me and Emily. Um, a lot of people sign things in this clever way with like little rhymes, which is not something people were still doing in the 80s at all. No. So, no. yeah, by the, by the aughts, it was like too cute with a two. <laughs> wow. stay, stay sweet. LOL. Uh, ours was a lot of KIT. Oh, we still do. But, but people yeah. would, would like put KIT like ironically oh mm-hmm. let's see no we did it genuinely i always <laughs> did sorry sorry so sloppy oh yeah because i was That's sloppy <laughs> um so then another thing was i don't know i felt uncomfortable in the whole scene where, where mimi was tutoring claudia on english because mm-hmm. it's like why is like mimi she's esl and she also had a stroke and she's <laughs> tutoring claudia and I, I don't know. Something about that just seemed a little bit off to me. I don't think I I I don't I think her language was totally her English was great before the stroke though, right? I don't think mm-hmm. she's like, you know, still has trouble with English. Mm-hmm. Other than the stroke. I think the idea of tutoring Claudia is like helping her stay on task and helping mm. her not get overwhelmed and quit. It's right, less about right. like the content. an expert in English literature. Yeah. Right. You know, she. I think she does a really nice job. She just asks her questions that keeps her going. That's true. I guess my mom helped me with homework, and like her, her grasp of the English language was also, you know, English is her second language. Mm-hmm. Um, the trip man is still around. Oh yeah, yeah, he exists. Yeah. He's still around, and also um, how Marianne brought her cat to the hospital. Oh yeah, yeah, that's funny. Oh wait, I thought of something too. I was wondering, and I'm surprised Esme didn't make note of the fact that like Claudia and Don sort of become friends on their own in this book. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't really pay attention to that. Say more. Well, yeah, I mean, like Don's sad because Jeff's gone, and so she's like Claudia says, like Don's been staying over for dinner a lot, and then like Don's the one who goes to the hospital with her, and he's like there the whole time, and they're oh, they're you're right. Yeah, they have like mm-hmm. a a new kind of budding friendship in this book. Yeah, I was I was certain you were going to make a, a make a comment about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I I missed it. I missed it because it just seemed so unrealistic to me. I didn't even register. <laughs> Burn. Okay, so okay, Claudia's candy. Well, she got she has Doritos, Butterfingers, double stuff Oreos, pretzels, and M Ms. Kind Solid. of the standard standard fare for her. But whenever yeah. she says Doritos, I really want Doritos. Mm-hmm. Love I could Doritos. send you some. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Please do. Uh, tallies in this book, not particularly interesting. We get one shy, one sensitive. Claudia does not call herself exotic. One individual. And then I have a, I have a Mallory tally question. So I fear I'm getting, you know, we've, we've got practical and level-headed, um, both of which... Uh, Claudia uses once to describe her. Then she also calls her sensible another time. Are those all the same, or am I really trying to circle in on one of those as the central Mallory trope? They're all, they're all synonyms, right? But I don't track. I guess there's not a great synonym for sensible for sensitive. I don't track synonyms for everybody else, right? Like like when they say Don hates junk food, I don't code that as Don equals health food, right? Okay, so I think, but I think sensible and practical are the same. So level headed is more apt to appear than sensible, and I think level headed is also something that's a bit different. That's like the temperament, and then the other one is a sort of commentary on like her intellect in a sense, in a way, right? That she's not going to freak out, but she's also going to have 
like a practical solution to a problem. Okay. So am I tracking two then? Am I tracking practical and sensible like as one and then level-headed as a separate one? Or are they all the same? I don't know. I think they're all the same. I revise. Okay. Wait. Can we also talk about how like Claudia describes Mallory and she says, Mallory is that she's so practical and level-headed. You could say to her, Mal, there's a line loose in the basement. And she'd say perfectly calmly, okay, close the basement door, call 911 and evacuate the children. And don't take any meat out of the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. What? Loved it. <laughs> I, I, is that a good intro to Weirdest Lines? Yeah. Yeah. What else did you have, Annie? Um, I only wrote down one, and it, it is a Mallory quote. Where she says, autographs are dumb. Oh, I loved that one. <laughs> Just like such a cynical what? thing to say for, for 11 She's 11. Yeah. I know. Okay. I had a couple. One was, um, it was funny to me. There were a lot of crank calls in this book. Um, so it's carrying over from uh, the last book where there were also some when they were in New York. Um, and I was thinking a lot about like the fake names um, mm-hmm. that like Bart would use or that we see in terms of like, you know, this is a call for Mr. Jablomi, that's Haywood Jablomi, you know, and things like that. And that the one that they use in this is Rita Book. Yeah. Like, it's just like so, so G-read Lame. <laughs> My other favorite line was a Jesse line. And hold on, I wrote it down, but I want to see what the context is. Oh, it's when she's answering a prank call when she's babysitting. And someone says, is Prince Charles there? And Jesse says, he can't come to the phone. He's outside waxing his yacht. And I just just thought he's outside waxing his yacht was very, very good comeback. Autographs are dumb. Autographs are dumb. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Um, What should be pizza toast to? I want a pizza toast to Christy assiduously recommending to reimburse the babysitter's quote unquote business expenses when they're playing practical jokes. And how would you like to characterize that? (laughs) Man. Yeah. How can I sum that up in a nice little pizza toast? I just thought it was really funny that there's all these notebook entries where she's like, well, we'll we'll give you the dollar 50 that you paid the triplets for their hairy spider. Um, I mean, we can pizza toast to that, Emily. That's fine, but we need a catchier way to say it. Yeah, okay. Um, here's to Christie's business acumen, or here's to Christie's compassionate capitalism. <laughs> no, I will not be pizza toasting to that. So war, war, <laughs> war funding. Um, like here's to the babysitters mechanisms. club military industrial complex. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay. Pizza toast to the babysitter's militarial. Sorry. 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 Pizza toast to the babysitter's club military industrial complex. To the BSC military industrial complex. complex. That sounded horrible. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. 
Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.